Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Uh, my name's Joanna Moore and I love the Unmistakable Creative because it sparks all these crazy ideas in me and makes me have really fun runs. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go sell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
In this episode of The Unmistakable Creative, Sean D'Souza joins us to talk about his journey from being a cartoonist for India's national newspapers to becoming a successful copywriter and the tremendous power of showing up every single day to work at your craft. Sean, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. It's a pleasure being here, Srini. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's interesting. You wrote in and, uh, you know, I was actually familiar with your work already because I'd read so much of it on Copyblogger. But when you told me about the story, I was so intrigued because it seemed so unusual for somebody to come from Indian descent to have this kind of a background. So on that note, uh, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourself, your story, the journey, the background, and how that has led you to everything that you're up to? I think that a lot of my my whole background has come from this lack of stuff. You know, most people, they often talk about how they need stuff. And when I was growing up, I didn't know that I had very little. I, my parents grew up in what you would call a middle-class family. And when I was very young, I ran into a whole bunch of trouble. Uh, when I was two, I got meningitis. I was on a, standing on a stool looking out on the balcony and then fell down. And my mother, she was a little afraid because there was this whole situation where I was kind of had convulsions and stuff. And she just ran with me to the hospital. Now, we didn't have a phone. We didn't have a car. And this was common for people in India. But she had to run like two kilometers to get to the hospital. And then when I was seven, I had this thing called child rheumatism where effectively your the joints in your your hands and your feet are so uh, your your legs are so um well there's so much pain that you can't stand up you're crawling at 7 so i don't know what it is but very very quickly i had to deal with all this trips to the doctors and this adversity that as a kid, you don't know you're running into adversity. You just know that you're at the doctor a lot and you're facing up with all these problems. But instead of my parents trying to mollycoddle me, and I wasn't weak or anything, but instead of them trying to do anything, they added more responsibility. So they would, you know, my father was ill and one day I, I was under 10 and I had to go to the hospital uh, with some blood tests and stuff like that. I had to go 30 kilometers in a bus, and if you're traveling in an Indian bus, you know, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's not this orderly line. It's just yeah. free for all. And when you're seven or eight years old, that's like, you know, <laughs> it's, like, it's like a bunch of elephants trying, and, and you're just a little ant out there. But that's the kind of thing that I was given. I was given the responsibility of taking my sister to school when I was 10, and she was just three and I, I, you know, some of the stories my parents have told me and some of the stories I remember because of a specific timeline, and that is I know that I must have been 10 because I was seven years older than my sister and I knew that she was in, you know, this nursery and I had to take her to school. So a lot of that started out when at a very early age, so by the age I was 10, I, the adversity kind of shaped me, but then the responsibility came in as a layer and that's a lot to do with how my parents brought me up. And from then on, you know, there's this whole gap where I don't know what really happened, not because I lost my memory, but because I just turned to a teenager. But then I went to university, and in university, all of my friends would go to, to movies and stuff like that. And somehow I felt that I had to turn that adversity into something better. And 
I used to draw since I was very little because I was very shy as a kid. In fact, I was very shy all the way to university. Uh, I remember the first year in university, I didn't speak to any of the girls at all, but I could draw cartoons. And so what I would do is I would sit in what we'd call the canteen or the cafeteria and I would draw the cartoons and they would come to me. So I found this little kind of chick magnet kind of thing <laughs> just for the cartoons. And then I found that I could actually earn money from those cartoons. So I started going to newspapers. Now, I, I was in this place in, in Mumbai, which was quite centrally located. And within about, say, about two or three miles, we had a lot of newspapers. And so I'd go there and I'd say to them, uh, look, I can draw cartoons. And they would say, uh, okay, we already have illustrators. But then I'd stick around and, you know, I'd go back and repeatedly. And eventually they just, you know, it was almost like this guy's so persistent, let's just give him something to do and see what he does with it. And today when I look at those cartoons, they're not great. They're actually quite pathetic. So I'm surprised that they gave me a chance, let alone got, I mean, I got I got paid for them. Soon I was drawing, um, so then I ran into a kind of situation where I became a, a, a victim of my own success in a way. It became a monster because I was drawing a comic strip for one newspaper, which is a political one, and then a gag comic strip for another newspaper, and this was running five days a week. So I had to turn out 10 comic strips on top of all the illustrations that I was doing, um, and I thought this would be terrible, but it turned out completely the opposite. I found that if I had to do it once a week, you know, just one cartoon instead of 10 cartoons a week, I found it was much harder. So what we had here is the situation where right through university, I was drawing for the newspaper, drawing for magazines and earning money uh, so that I could pay off my college education. In India, it's not as much as in the U.S. or other places. But still, uh, I could buy a motorcycle, and that got me started out. But right towards the end of the whole university thing, I was like, I don't, I don't really, this cartooning thing is fine, but somehow, you know, you know how my parents are, I mean, especially my mother, she was like, Oh, you need to get a job. And so I started thinking in terms of that. And I'd studied to be not an accountant, but I I was doing a degree in accounting. And at that point in time, I was watching these newspaper ads and they would really excite me. I mean, advertising was to me like the, you know, it was like the madman, madman scenario. It was just the most sexiest profession you could get into. And I thought, hey, I can write really well. And so I had this guy. And so the thing in India was that all of the ads have the agency names on it. So in other countries, you don't necessarily have the names on it. So you don't know who created it and you have to dig to find out. But in India, the names are there. So you can track the kind of advertising that an agency does. And you say, this agency is really creative and that's not. And so I started to track gray advertising, and there was this guy, Christopher De Rosario, and he was the he was the guy in charge. He was the creative director. And that was it. He I wanted to be Christopher, so I went to him, and again I ran into adversity. He said, "No, you're still in university. You finish university. Uh, you do all your stuff, and you come later." And 
you know, for me, that was very hard to handle that I had this opportunity because even with the cartoons, it was like, if I just push a little more, maybe I'll get there. Maybe I'll get the door to open. And no matter how much I pushed while I was in university, I couldn't get into advertising. But right after I finished, I used that door <laughs> mechanism again. I went to another agency, which is well known in the U.S. as Leo Burnett. And I met, ran into this uh, creative director and I said to her, look, I'd like to join as a copywriter. And I showed her my cartoon portfolio. And she said, you know, there's a big difference between cartooning and copywriting. And I said... Yes, I know, but here's the deal. I'll stick around for a month, and if you don't like me, then I'll leave, and if I don't like you, I'll leave. And after a month, well, I was cracking jokes about how I was not getting paid, and she called me in and she said, okay, you're on the payroll. So, you know, you think, okay, this is fine. You're now settled. You've come to wherever you want to be, but there is this whole passion and this urge to just keep moving and and very shortly I joined another agency at that point in time it was just a factor of well do the job and I you know I had always dreamed of doing a full page like you know if you open the New York Times it's a full spread and for a copywriter to get a full spread in the newspaper is almost impossible I mean most copywriters will get little boxes to work with maybe quarter page, half page ads, but a full spread. And I would always complain to my boss about this, that I was a great copywriter. I wasn't getting any work to do that was suitable to my talents. And one day he came to me and said, you wanted a full spread? You don't have one full spread. You've got three full spreads. Go for it. Mm. And I couldn't do anything. <laughs> I mean, I was completely frozen. I didn't know what to do. And at that precise point, there was like a, a, a guy who came into our lives. His name was Adi Pocha. And he was doing like a weekend workshop or something on, on how to write TV commercials. And I went to that TV commercial thing. And I really liked what he was doing because he was teaching you how to write TV commercial, 30-second TV commercials, you know, by closing your eyes and working it out. And he didn't spell it out exactly, but I was completely uh, energized by that because on one side I had this opportunity of a lifetime. I couldn't do anything with it. And here was this this outlet, as it were, to, to – I don't know whether that was escaping. Maybe it was an escape. So I came back and I told my boss – uh, I'm leaving. And he was very nice about it. He said, you know, where are you going to go? And I said, I have no clue. But that was it. I just left. And that's kind of been the pattern. It's I've always tried to follow where I'm supposed to be going without knowing exactly whether there is a safety net in place. And sometimes it has worked for us and sometimes it hasn't worked for us. But I don't know whether the adversity has just been part of how I've kind of moved ahead. And it's the same thing when I moved from that commercial thing to this other guy's place. You know, I worked for nine months with this TV commercial guy. And then I decided I want to go back into cartooning. And his question when I left was, what took you so long? So it's like this. Everyone can see what's coming. 
everyone but yourself. Mm-hmm. And from there on, I went on to drawing cartoons. I had my own studio. I had uh, people working for me, uh, staff, you know, two, three people working. I showed them how to draw the cartoons and color them exactly like I did. So it was like a mini Walt Disney, except it was very, very small. Mm-hmm. But still, we were going out to lunches in the afternoon, doing all that kind of stuff. And then, when everything was completely stable, we decided to move to New Zealand. <laughs> so, suddenly we moved to New Zealand. We, the, the, the interesting about New Zealand is that we'd never been here before. Uh-huh. We didn't know anyone here. My wife was working for uh, the biggest fragrance company in the world, which is called Givadon Ruhr. It's based in Switzerland. We basically had everything paid for us. We had... They would pay for a car, for a chauffeur, for the flat uh, that we lived in, everything. We just had to pay for our food. Wow. And Yeah. And when, when I left, I was doing those three-hour lunches, going bowling in the middle of the day. So what we had to give up was enormous. And so the pressure of just going from all of this comfort to a point where you didn't know what you were going to expect – that was one pressure, but the other pressure came from family and friends. It was like, you know, my my mother came in. Mothers are good at this. She was like, just a few years ago, you got married, and then you moved so far away, and now you're moving to New Zealand? Hmm. And I don't know, but I think that that kind of obstacle, it's it's a benchmark for when you're doing the right thing. Hmm. Like, you know, all the forces start to pull or push into you as if like no 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 you shouldn't be going down this path this is too hard we you're you're making the wrong decision and every time i come to a path a part in my life where i make a leap and then everyone starts to discourage discourage me i'm going this is the sign this is the sign that we have to move forward hmm. and pretty much that's what we did we got to new zealand I started cartooning. I started to get a lot of work. Um, everything was going fine. And then I decided I want to go into marketing. And <laughs> the point is I started going to networking meetings. And they knew me as a cartoonist. They had known me for, as a cartoonist for six months when I went to the networking meeting. And then one day I turned up and I said, okay, um, I'm, a, I'm in marketing now. And... Uh, if you know of anyone who would like uh, uh, someone to help them with their marketing, let me know. And of course, I got no work because why would you trust the cartoonist mm-hmm. to talk to you about marketing? And so, yet we started getting a couple of consulting jobs and we went from there into more consulting jobs. And then I started up this little website called Million Bucks. And now, Million Bucks, it was .co.nz. And it was this pathetic site. It, I mean, you can still go onto archive.org and look for Million Bucks in the year 2001 or 2002. And it's got everything in six point. Um, it's very small font. And you have to read everything. And right down at the bottom, it says, if you want more, subscribe here. It's not even in blue. It's not even highlighted or underlined. And a thousand people signed up for that. Wow. So that's where we started. But I didn't realize that the name I chose was really crappy. I thought it was a great name. Uh-huh. 
And no one told me. So I printed business cards. I did all this stuff. I went for the networking meeting. And then one day I'm sitting at this cafe with my friend Eugene. And we're talking about this name. And he says, you know, that name's not so great. And I said, really? And he says, yeah, you, you, you send out a newsletter. You call it Psychological Tactics. And you call it Psychotactics, the newsletter. So call your company Psychotactics. And I said, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. And so after printing all these cards and the stationery, I had to throw all of that stuff, which I started, I mean, I started using that. And I used it for like eight years after we changed over to Psychotactics, you know, as rough paper. Mm -hmm. And so we started Psychotactics and I printed new cards and people all around me said, oh, good, now we can recommend you. Mm. And I said, why didn't you tell me before? And, you know, that's how people are. They don't want to offend you, so they don't tell you anything. And then you don't get any work and you think, what's wrong with these people? But sometimes you have to look inside you. Hmm. And so Psychotactics really started going in 2002. We're now in 2015. And we've had a really successful run. Uh, in 2004, we decided that we weren't going to be run by the business. So we were going to take three months off every year. And we've done that since 2004. So we work for three months and then we take a month off and then another three months and take a month off. And so we've, we've lived like we've wanted to do. We do uh, projects that I, I write books that no one else is writing. I do them in a way that no one else is doing them, do courses that no one else is doing. Um, to give you an example, I wrote 150 pages on, on just testimonials. Now, mm-hmm. there is no book on testimonials, but that's kind of where we are right now. Awesome. Okay, so the, there's a lot of really interesting stuff here. You know, <clears throat> I want to go back to the beginning of this. One of the things that you said uh, that caught my attention was you said that you were going through all this adversity uh, as a child, but at the time, you didn't even know it was adversity. It was just dealing with things. And I'm really interested in in how that experience of not knowing that you were dealing with adversity as a child, but going through it, has shaped uh, the way that you deal with adversity now as an adult, if that makes any sense. Yes, it makes perfect sense. Because what I did was I started studying people. And I started studying, you know, the eldest kid versus the second kid versus the third kid and, and so on. And what I found was that the, the more, the, the, the older kids tend to have more responsibility, more responsibility, more adversity, as it were, even though technically they should be, you know, more pampered because they're the first kids. But you know, they have to look after the younger ones. They have to do these things. Uh, I remember when I was uh, I, I was in charge of buying bread. Now, uh, most people in Western countries don't understand, don't don't have this experience of buying bread. But in India, you only have fresh bread for pretty much every meal. Uh, at least that was the case in my house. Uh-huh. So we had three three bakeries near our house, and. Uh, for breakfast, uh, you would have to go and buy bread. And the bread was just five minutes old because it was hot from the oven when you bought it. And then for lunch, you would go and you would buy bread again. And then for dinner, you would buy bread again. There was no concept of buying bread and keeping it in the fridge for seven days and then eating it. So I was in charge of buying bread. And um, I'd uh, go to a party when I was like 15 years old or 17 years old. And then I'd call my mom and say, oh, um, um, I'm at the party. And she would say, did you get the bread? And I would say, but my sister's at home. But, you know, it was always that was the responsibility. And 
I think that the adversity shapes you. I don't know if I'm answering your question, but mm. I think that the adversity, I didn't realize it at the time, but today when I run into adversity, I think it's cool. Like the other day, um, or, or to just to go back, one day when I was in India, my, my bike got stolen. And I walked into the back into the, my boss's room and he said, are you, weren't you leaving? And I said, yes, I did, but my bike is stolen. And he says, you're the craziest person I've ever seen in my life. I've never seen anyone smiling when they say something of theirs is stolen. Hmm. And the other day I went to the doctor and he looked at my cholesterol levels and he said, your cholesterol level is up. And I thought it was really cool that I got a bad report because now I could make some changes but my brother-in-law met me and he goes, you mean your good cholesterol level is up? I said, no, 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 the bad cholesterol level is up. And he goes, why are you smiling? So, <laughs> I don't know, that's what it's done to me. It's freaked me out. Huh, interesting. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, you know, you've taken what I consider a fairly unconventional path for somebody of Indian descent to take, right? Because we don't grow up in a culture where we're encouraged to do things like cartoon or draw or, you know, do something artistic. It's like, these things are nice hobbies, but there's no way you're going to make a living at that. At least, uh, I, I was never encouraged to pursue creative endeavors as potential careers. You know, I, I think I may have shared this on the show before I was in band in high school and I got into the USC school of music and my dad talked me out of it for good reason. And I, I actually don't regret that he did, but I can't help but wonder if there was some damage done just by having that conversation because it shut off the possibilities of all other creative careers. So I'm really interested in what this relationship with your parents was like that would open up all this sort of, you know, creative energy in you. I find the fact, I mean, I look at, you know, I, I, I mentor my niece now and mm -hmm. I look at other parents now and I find it very odd. I find it very odd because they're not, exactly what I would call very liberal parents or, you know, okay, like airy-fairy. They're very rooted. They're very conservative. They're very religious. Um, and you would think that they would have this, this, you know, this is my eldest son. This is where he's going to go. This is what he's going to do. And yet, I mean, if I had to write that script, I would say that's where I would have gone. I would have gone down that path. But... Mm. They just, my mother would come in from time to time pushing me back, you know, you should get a job. So even when I had the motorcycle, even when I had, you know, I was sitting at home drawing cartoons, making money, doing all that stuff. No, no, she wanted me to get a job. So I got a job. But the point is that somehow my, my I think that my family, my father was a risk, what I could, not risk taker, it's a really bad term because um I think the whole family was in business, his part of the family. And somehow he thought it was okay to just do stuff. And even when I was 13, he, he, he'd do these crazy things that I could never do as, I mean, if I, I don't have any kids, but I could never do as a parent. Uh -huh. uh, when I was 13, you know, from Mumbai, you go to Goa, which is just off the West Coast, and it's 600 kilometers away. And you're going in this bus. You're not going on a flight, which is, you know, all, you know, air hostess taking care of you and stuff. You're just, so you put me on a bus and I'd go 600 kilometers away at the age of 13 and then get off the bus 
and then walked down to my grandmother's house, which was about two or three kilometers. She didn't know I was coming. So I could have got lost along the way, kidnapped. I don't know. No one knew I was coming or going. And, but he always let me go. And I don't know why. And I think that, that really makes a difference when, when you have this roots and wings kind of situation. Huh. Let me ask you this. What were sort of your early artistic influences that sparked this whole interest in cartooning? Uh, I'm just curious, you know, from, from growing up in India, because the, 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 and then the other question I have for you, actually, and this is what I wanted to ask you, uh, you, know, you mentioned growing up without TV, uh, phones, uh, effectively, I mean, you grew up without you know, mass media. And I'm really interested in how, you know, one, growing up in India, you know, what your artistic influences were, and two, how not growing up, you know, sort of influenced by mass media has shaped your perspective as a storyteller and an artist. Okay, so so the first part is that w- when you grow up in India, most people lump India as one place. You know, it's a hot place. It's <laughs> you know, it's, they just have this perception of India, just yeah. like we would have a perception of Siberia, which is probably wrong. Right. And the newspapers in India, you know, in in I know now from traveling in the U.S. that you get some newspapers that have comic strips, but in India, they the the King Feature Syndicate and uh, United Feature Syndicate, which are some of the biggest comic strip distributors, would dump these cartoons, which had nothing to do with India, but you know, Haggard the Horrible, Dennis the Menace, all of this stuff would appear in Indian newspapers because they would dump it at you know, five cents or 10 cents a piece per, per comic strip. And so the Indian comics, so we had one full page, so maybe 10 or 12 comic strips every single day in the newspaper. And on Sundays, you had Sunday spreads. Uh-huh. So there was this, you know, this enormous amount of graphic illustration coming at you in the newspaper every single day. I mean, I look at New Zealand newspapers and they don't have it on the weekdays and they don't have it on the weekends and you don't see a single comic strip in them. But in India, we had that. What I didn't have was this whole concept of a library. So, you know, you could go to a public library and get comics and do all that stuff. But growing up, I didn't have any of that. Everything came from the newspaper. Uh-huh. And where did the stories come from? Now, this is the great part about growing up in India. India is full of uh, both uh, religious stories and uh, mythology. So there's, I grew up with this magazine, this kid's magazine called Chanda Mama, which actually means Uncle Moon. Uh-huh. And... I was trained to save my money so that I could get a subscription. And then I had to go to the newsstand and pick up this. This It makes me sound like I'm 100 years old now. But, you know, I had to go and pick up this this magazine that would come at the newsstand with my pocket money. So instead of spending it on, you know, sweets and stuff like that, I was I had to get this this magazine. And it was full of stories. But the beauty of the stories is not that the stories were written by someone contemporary, but these stories were age-old stories. Mm. You know, they had a story about Vikram and the ghost. Uh, it was about this guy called King Vikram, and he runs into this ghost on the in a field or something, hanging on a tree, and then the ghost won't let him go unless he tells him a story. So it's a bit like, you know, the Arabian Nights. But every time they craft this story, which was just rehashed from hundreds or thousands of years of storytelling. And so 
we had only this limited amount of stuff. And so you read it again and again and again. And recently I realized what had happened to me because I had been doing some studies on how you have this accelerated learning. And what the person said was that if you have maybe 100 or 200 great examples, then you don't need instruction. So what I was running into was this limitation. So instead of having access to a million things, I was having, I had access to few things, but have them over and over again, same stories over and over again. And of course we had the Reader's Digest, which was very cheap as well. So you had comic strips, Reader's Digest, Chandamama, and nothing much else to do. So there was, there was not, I mean, TV was really, really bad uh-huh. uh, back then. I remember. Know? Yeah. <laughs> and I was probably there even later than what you're talking about. Yeah. So, I mean, we had the most crappiest kid shows. Uh, you know, you had TV just, I mean, there, there, there were programs that were produced by the Indian government, which was one of them was about the land and the soil. And <laughs> for a kid, I mean, for an adult, it would be boring. But for a kid, it was, this was like, you know, like Soviet Union run <laughs> stuff. <laughs> it was terrible. Just Terrible documentaries. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep.
These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Wow. So, you know, you've talked about the artistic influences. What about growing up without sort of this mass media that most of us um, have come to accept as normal in our lives? I think that it, there is a negative side to it because what happens with mass media is that you get this confluence of, of ideas that strike you from every time. And one idea builds on the other idea and the third idea builds on the fourth idea. And that mm -hmm. becomes very interesting. And that is how you get creativity. So most people think that you have to be born creative, but no, you actually have to put two disconnected ideas together. And this you learn as a cartoonist. So even the cartoonists cannot explain what they're doing, what they're really doing is they're taking an idea that, you know, like, so for instance, um, a bat and drinking coffee and you go, how do I put these two ideas together? And, and so all of this mass media really helps to have all of these different ideas that bounce off each other and then create a brand new idea. But not having access to all of that stuff means that you have to create your own stuff. You have to create your own entertainment, as it were. Uh -huh. You have to be more creative because, you know, in the summer holidays, for instance, uh, we, we get... Uh, May, June, and July off, or we used to get May, June, and July off. Three months is a very long time, and you run out of books, and you run out of stuff to do. So you have to, you have to come up with card games, and you have to come up with book games, and all kinds of things that, that force you to think in a different way. Hmm. I love it. That's uh, so, so insightful. <laughs> it's funny when you started mentioning the card games, the book games, I remember the summers that I was dragged to India when I was a kid and like, you know, we would say, this is not a vacation. This is a punishment. Right. And again, you know, growing up in that situation, you don't know. It's, no. it's like some, someone asked Prince Andrew, what was it like growing up in, in the palace? And he right. goes, you know, I don't know. <laughs> that was my life. Yeah. Let me ask you this. So when you look at the world and you look at, you know, things that are going on and, and you look at all these influences, I mean, how do you figure out how to translate that into stories and into cartoons? I mean, what do you look for and how do you connect the dots? You know, you mentioned the example of the bat and the coffee, but um, I, I want to do a bit of a deeper dive into this because it's really interesting to understand your creative process uh, for how a cartoon comes to life. Like by the time something is in the paper and we're looking at a comic strip, how does something go from, you know, an idea in your head to what we end up seeing in the newspaper? So storytelling, whether you know, you're writing articles, you're writing a book, which, by the way, is probably the way that most people like to, like to see things, you know, sure. when they look at books here, um, is dependent on, on, on conflict. So one of the things that, that you, you, you look at uh, in storytelling, and, and we'll go to cartoons shortly, is conflict. And I've been teaching my niece this. So I go, okay, when you go to school, and what makes a story great? And the first thing is is this conflict. When you you're starting, you know, you you go to school and then something happens, and then something happens that slows you down. What is that something? Because if you say I went to school, uh, the teacher said I did a good job, uh, I then sat down, I did. It becomes a very boring story. Mm -hmm. But the moment you go, I went to school, and the teacher was standing in the doorway, and she picked on me. Now we have a situation of conflict. And immediately, your it spikes the interest level. 
Now, the way cartoonists use, so that's the storyteller level, but the way cartoonists use it is they will take a concept like, um, I don't know, like say, um, maybe maybe someone that that is uh, got is putting lipstick on like a woman putting lipstick on uh-huh and then they'll go how do i how do i change this around and and so they'll say they'll look at something which is completely disconnected something in the room and maybe there's a helmet lying around and now you have this woman with the helmet on and she's putting lipstick on top of the helmet now that's very mildly funny <laughs> okay uh-huh but when I sit down, like I'm doing a book on coffee cartoons right now. Uh-huh. And so what I have to do is I have to say, okay, I'm going to go to the cafe and I'm going to open the book and I have no idea what I'm going to go through. But I'm going to pick a theme. Like I'm going to pick heaven, for instance. And I'm going to say, I have to link that to coffee. And then I don't know what's going to come, but um suddenly i'll see this uh, maybe i'll look up cartoons in heaven and something will spur something or i'll just have to force fit it somehow and then i'll get an idea like the guy saint peter at the gate saying to this guy who's obviously dead he says nothing personal but we were running out of baristas in in heaven you know and uh or or um an alien, and this is the name of the book that I want to give, uh, an alien landing uh, and the aliens, the two little Martians there, and they're saying to this this stunned uh, human, take me to your barista, uh-huh. right? Uh, so some of the jokes, they appear really funny when you view them, and some of them are funny when you, when you see, when you, when you tell them. But it's always a case of force-fitting. It's a case of you take this idea and that idea and you put it together. And sometimes it just, you know, you're driving to the place or you're walking to the cafe and you get the idea. And sometimes you have to sit there for an hour before the idea comes. But it, it, it always comes. I mean, I have gone through maybe six months of not sitting down at the cafe and not drawing a coffee cartoon. And I've got zero ideas in that time. And the day I sit down and go, okay, I'm going to do this today, the idea is there. Yeah. Well, like Stephen Pressfield talks about just showing up. He said, you know, you just keep showing up and the words eventually will. Or something along those lines. Yes. I mean, showing – the thing is that I also draw a daily cartoon. So you know how people keep diaries? Mm -hmm. Well, I keep a visual diary. And uh, you can see it at – a site called theothershawndesouza.com. Okay, cool. I'll, link, I'll be sure to link that up in the show notes. Yeah. So we have Psychotactics, which is the marketing, but I wanted to keep this other stuff as well. Also, that was adversity. At that point, I couldn't get seandesouza.com, so <laughs> I got the other and it seemed funnier. But anyway, so I, I keep this diary every single day, and I draw my life in that cartoon, and I post on fa- Facebook and stuff like that. But th- the point is that what I've noticed is that I've had no specific instruction in the past uh, five years since I started keeping that diary. But I, I kept that diary because one of my teachers, he said, you know, you should paint every day. And so I thought, how can I do this? I'll just keep a diary and I'll just paint every day in watercolor. So my watercolor has improved dramatically. I mean, you go back five years ago and you look at the stuff and you look at what I'm doing right now. 
And there's been no instruction. I haven't done anything. I did one course after that, which I did in Spain. Um, I've looked at a few things here and there, but very little else. And just by showing up every day, you know, whether it's writing or drawing or whatever, your brain is, even though you're showing up and you think, well, I'm not learning anything specific, I'm not getting any specific instruction, your brain is looking for a pattern and it's working on that pattern. And over time, you are able to figure out how to do it. Not able to explain how you do it, that takes a teacher's skill, but you're able to to figure out. And this has kind of taken me down the path of of creativity and talent because I personally don't believe in talent. And it's one thing to say it and another thing to prove it. So we had to start up, you know, several courses, including a cartooning course that we do now. And so we have to turn people who say, well, I can't draw a straight line and then after six months, they're drawing so well that people say, are you a professional cartoonist? Wow. <laughs> we'll have to link up your uh, your course in the show notes because that just sounds like fun. It is, it is a lot of fun, but it also shows you that the power of your brain, uh-huh. and that is that um, it works in two completely different ways. So uh, I was watching, uh, I couldn't, explain the first way, which is what you run into with a lot of people. So if you went to Picasso or you went to uh, Hemingway or you went to someone and you said, how do you explain how you write? How do you explain the storytelling? How do you t- explain the, the, the painting? And they go, if we have to explain it, then, you know, you don't understand it. Or, but essentially, it's their, it's their way of saying, I can't explain it. Mm. But what they're doing is they're following a pattern. And we know where they're following a pattern because when you look at a Picasso or you look at a Hemingway or you look at something, you know it's them. So that means there is a signature. There is a a method that their brain is following, but it's doing it so quickly that they're not able to explain it. And then you have the other side of it, which is where someone is able to break down everything into little bits. And once they break it down into little bits... They're able to reconstruct it so that you have very tiny increments. And this is what we have to do in the cartooning course or the article writing course or copywriting. These are all supposedly creative skills. And people say, I can't write, I can't draw, I can't do this, I can't do that. And the reason why they can't do that is because when you look at the Picasso method, what's happened is similar to what happens in, in Japan. So in Japan, what they do is they have this thing called chicken sexing. It's not as interesting as it sounds. (laughs) (laughs) So chicken sexing is really, they have to uh, distinguish between a male chick and a female chick. Now, it would take them approximately six weeks to figure out whether it was a male chick or a female chick. And over time, people got very good at it, and they could do it in a day's time. So why do they have to do this? Well, basically, they're getting rid of the male chicks. They don't want the male chicks because they're unproductive. So they're getting rid of them, and they have to feed them for six weeks, and you might as well get rid of them quickly. But how do you teach someone to do this? Because all the chickens look exactly the same when they're you know, one day old. And what they did was they tried to teach them, but they couldn't teach them because these people had acquired these skills over a long period of time. So they didn't teach them. They just said, okay, you sit here and you pick up a chick and you say, that's a male chick and we'll tell you if it's right or wrong. 
And so the person would pick up a chick and say, male chick, female chick, right, wrong, right, wrong, right, wrong. And then suddenly they get it. Hmm. And they were 100% accurate all the time. And they could tell within a day's time. So you could go there and you go through this exercise. You get two, three, two, three hundred good examples, good, you know, so you get quantity and quality. And suddenly you have this ability to, to tell um, this is a male chick or a female chick. But you can't then transfer that skill to anyone else except by using this random method. And this is what you see um, when you're reading, learning to ride a bicycle. So they can tell you, you know, balance, balance, go, look to your left, hold us a handlebar, but you don't have any instruction. Right. And so that is one form of learning where you, when you have a quantity and quality of examples and they're thrown at you, the brain figures out a pattern that enables it to do that creative task, like cartooning or writing or even dancing or cooking. Like most people say, you know, I don't know how to dance. But dancing is not in the feet, it's in the hands. So a lot of the, when you look at dancers, a lot of the tension comes from, the, from how they hold each other, you know, the, 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 the hands itself. So the pressure on the hands, that's where the dancing starts. So that is one side, and then the other side of creativity becomes this whole concept of deconstruction, where someone looks at, say, a story and says, what are the components of a story? And then we get this concept like the wall. So every time we, you know, we practice this wall for 10, 20 days in a row, maybe, and then eventually it becomes second nature. And but now you know exactly what you did. So this week, or for the next two weeks, we'll do the wall. The next two weeks, we'll do anticipation lines. The third two weeks, we'll do uh, connectors, which is we'll break a story in the middle or right at the start, and then we'll connect the story right at the end. So then you get a scientific way, but you're actually taking the first part, which is all of these great examples, and then you're learning from them. I don't know. Yeah, this this is... So this is how we go about... Either the random creativity and the specific creativity. Wow. That may have to be one of my favorite parts of the entire interview so far. Uh, one that I'll have to play back multiple times. Let me ask you this. This is something that, you know, I, I've been really curious about. And it's something I've asked people who kind of have been, you know, I, I guess on, on one side of the camera on the other. And it's a question I stole from Sam Jones, who uh, was a photographer. I'm curious about two things. What did you learn about uh, copywriting from being a cartoonist and what did you learn about being a cartoonist from being a copywriter okay i'll take one question at a time yeah uh, what did i learn from copywriting well the first thing i learned about copywriting from cartooning is that you cannot so you cannot say the same thing as you've just shown so you know i think there's this story about this guy he goes into art school and he, he draws an apple on the screen on the on the Oh, he shows a picture of an apple, and underneath that, it says apple. And he says, he covers one of it, and he says, you can only ever use one of these. Use the words or use the pictures. And that is what I learned from cartooning, that when, it's like, recently we're redesigning our website, and, you know, the words are saying, um, you know, you, you, you say something like, you don't want to get into a soup. And then what the natural instinct is to put a picture of soup there or someone in a soup, a cartoon of some, someone in a soup. 
And that is one thing that you learn very quickly, that if you're going to use the word soup, don't show soup. If you're going to show a picture of soup, don't write soup. Huh. Because it's, yeah, it's, it, it's pointless. It's like you're treating me like an imbecile. <laughs> yeah. And, and another thing that I learned um, from cartooning was this whole concept of, um, I, I went to this, this uh, editor one day and he says, you know, I like your cartoons. I was pretty young then, but he, he said, I like your cartoons, but you know, you tell the whole story. And I said, what do you mean by that? Am I not supposed to tell the whole story? He says, no, no, no. You're supposed to take the reader to the edge of the cliff and leave them there. They're supposed to fall off the cliff mm-hmm. or they're supposed to stay on the cliff. And that is, that is what makes it interesting. So that's the kind of thing I learned from that editor, which I now take to storytelling. You know, when I write articles or write books, I will go and, and take the reader right to the edge of the cliff and then jump to another section of the story, which has no relevance. And then right later on in the story, I'll, I'll connect. So the cartooning career and the copywriting has kind of enmeshed themselves in, where, in, in quite interesting ways. Wow. Um, you know, I, I have one question, uh, w- which probably falls more in line with mindset uh, than it has, uh, than it does with some of the stuff we've been talking about. You know, one, one of the things that I, I've noticed as you've told this story is a pattern of persistence in just about every aspect of your life. Uh, just even down to your daily habits from the way you've just described them. And I'm interested in hearing if you think that pattern of persistence is the byproduct of the environment you've grown up in, or is it something that can be learned? And if so, how? This is a very difficult question for me to answer, because if you asked me this question three years ago, uh-huh. I, would have said, I would have said that it is just, um, it's just inborn. Um, I think that at some level, there are people that are driven. But the problem is that we don't have enough qualitative and quantitative examples to to figure this out because there is so much of these in-between things that come into everyday life that we can't measure it. But I do think that if you are thrown into the deep end, Mm -hmm. then your persistence level either breaks you or makes you. Mm. And I think that if you are push too far you probably break but if you push close enough to the edge all the time then you figure out a way from you know making that edge interesting so let me give you an example uh, last year we th- I mean this year just yesterday my chartered accountant came across and he said that we had increased our revenue by 10% which is substantial because you know we've been in business for a long time and um We've, yeah, we 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 earn a very very good income, uh-huh. um, so much that we've got a huge buffer. But the the point is that I still see that as a negative. I saw that as some place where we're getting too comfortable. You know, ten percent. We should have a party. We should relax. Whatever. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't relax. <laughs> we're going away for the weekend, and we'll go on our month vacation after in in October. But Mm -hmm. 
I think to answer your question, I think that you need to, without the adversity happening, uh, things don't change. And just this morning, I was listening to GM and how you know Toyota came into GM and GM had a fifty percent share and went down to thirty five percent share, and that's when they changed. So a lot of the, a lot of the growth happens to people. That persistence happens once they get into this uncomfortable situation. I think it's very important, the adversity. Uh-huh. I don't know if it answered your question. But. No, no, it, it absolutely did. Uh, which I, It actually raises another question that I asked somebody very recently, and I'm really curious about this because I, I haven't asked a lot of people this question except one other person. At the level you're at, do you still find yourself going through sort of the irrational fear and irrational conversations in your head of, oh, this could be all over, everything's going to blow up in my face. Like, Do you ever deal with that sort of irrational voice in your head uh, at the level you're at? Yes, you asked Donald Miller this question. Actually, I asked Ashley Ambridge, I think. Oh, uh, you did? Okay. Yeah. You asked Donald as well. I probably yeah. asked Donald a, a form of this question. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, the yes. Um, in fact, See, we have to battle two things. The first thing is that we can't chase after everything. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is that we're too comfortable already. So, so you're, you're, you're thinking, well, you've worked all these years, you've got a sizable income, everything's going fine. You should relax. And yes, you do relax, but everything, we're still very conservative. In our spending habits, you know, recently, uh, I mean, we, we when we go on our vacations, we travel uh, economy. Um, we could afford business class in a flash. I mean, without even thinking about it, it wouldn't even slightly dent our income. Mm-hmm. But the thought of I mean, and grew, growing up in adversity teaches you that yes, you're okay today, but. What's the point? You're going to be on that flight for 12, I mean, everything from New Zealand is 12 hours away, but (laughs) you know, you're on a flight for 12 hours. You're in the sky. They're feeding you in the sky. I mean, sure, it's a slightly uncomfortable seat, but would you pay $7,000 or $8,000 for one night in a hotel? And I would never do that. Yeah. So recently I was looking at a car. So we were looking at a BMW and it's $100,000. Again, we could splash that hundred thousand, and you know, it wouldn't make a big difference. But we drive uh, a Toyota, and the Toyota is like seven years old. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think you can get over that. I think when you grow up in adversity, you go two ways: you either blow it up, everything, because you want to overcompensate for your adversity, or you go like. I, I came from a, an adverse situation. I'm, I'm going to stay here because if things get bad, then I, you know, I'm okay. Because I think that uh, while creativity needs adversity, it doesn't need that excessive stress. And when you just kind of spend too much and you expand too quickly, what you really have is stress that you don't that doesn't make you creative it just makes you uh, uh, someone who's in charge of management and so we've got to have that balance where we're going to do stuff that we enjoy and that's why about a year ago just a little over a year ago 
uh, we decided to start a podcast at the three-month vacation. And so when I started the podcast, I didn't know approximately what I was getting into. But now I spend five hours producing that the music on that podcast. But I enjoy it. And the income that we have, that buffer that we have, allows us to do that instead of chasing other stuff. And so it's it's i think the adversity really helps and i think that that persistent helps um and you yeah you can't shake that you can't shake the fact that it could get over tomorrow but on the same front as it were if it all collapsed around me tomorrow it wouldn't hassle me that much mm. wow well sean this has been really interesting uh I've just enjoyed listening to to hear, hearing your stories so much. I mean, there's so many nuggets that you packed into an hour, uh, which which are you know some of my favorite conversations, just because you got to play them over and over again just to figure out what the gems are. So I'm going to wrap with my final question, which you know, uh, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think it's showing up. I really do think it's the factor of showing up. If you show up every day, and I've seen this with my watercolors. Uh, if I show up every day, the brain works out a pattern. It makes you better. It makes you faster. But the daily, I mean, you, you, the showing up every day makes a difference. Now, let me just temper that with a little thing that I found out as well. And that is the breaks also matter. So if you go away from it for a little while, it, when you come back, you get better. I don't know how it does that, but I think like the brain needs a little break and then it comes back and you get better. But if you have 365 days in a year, I would say use 300 of those days to get really good at whatever you're doing. And that that makes you unmistakable because people, people your clients know that you're going to show up, you know you're going to show up, and your brain knows that you're going to show up. And that makes for an amazing, that makes your life so much better. It's just, you have control over your life. I mean, that's really what we want. When we're a kid or when you're 90 years old, the only thing you want is control. Well, Sean, this has been really phenomenal. Um, and I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us. I'm really, really glad you reached out to me because this has been great. Well, I've, <laughs> you know how it is. You enjoy just thinking about what you do in the first place. So I, I'm, I'm really grateful that you asked the questions. Yeah. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. 
Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.